This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from ResumeWritingSucks.com, the free all-in-one platform for creating the perfect resume. Looking to stand out in a crowded field? Or maybe it's just time to start something new. The job you want is just a click away thanks to Resume Writing Sucks. The RWS software perfectly tailors your resume for the job you want. So head over to ResumeWritingSucks.com today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? That was the late Bill Paxton playing an underwater archaeologist who discovers the lost wreckage of the RMS Titanic in James Cameron's epic film of the same name. Well, today, I'm talking with the real deal, ocean explorer Dr. Robert Ballard, who not only discovered the Titanic, but also the German battleship Bismarck, the lost fleet of Guadalcanal, the USS aircraft carrier Yorktown, John F. Kennedy's boat PT-109, the hydrothermal vents known as black smokers that are the origins of life on Earth, and many other historical and scientific treasures at the bottom of the ocean. During his long career, he's conducted more than 120 deep-sea expeditions, and he's a pioneer of the early use of deep-diving submarines and telepresence technology, which he's putting to use in the JASON Project, an award-winning long-distance educational program that reaches more than a million students and 25,000 teachers annually. In 2008, Dr. Ballard founded the Ocean Exploration Trust and acquired his present ship of exploration, EV Nautilus, which embarks annually on a five-month expedition and is currently exploring the waters off the Pacific coast of North America. Dr. Ballard is also the director of the newly created Center for Ocean Exploration at the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography, a National Geographic Society Explorer-in-Residence, a commissioner in the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, senior scientist emeritus in the Department of Applied Ocean Physics and Engineering at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's received 21 honorary doctorates and numerous awards, including the Explorers Club's Explorer Medal, the National Geographic Society's Hubbard Medal, the Lindbergh Award, and the National Endowment for the Humanities Medal. Today, Dr. Robert Ballard joins me to talk about the top-secret government mission that he was on when he found the Titanic, what it was like the first time he personally went down to visit Titanic, and his outrage at those who are looting the sacred burial ground for profit. We also discuss what really sank the Lusitania, what Russia's up to in the waters around vital fiber optic cables in the Atlantic, and the future of fishing with sustainable floating fisheries in the open ocean. Bob Ballard also talks about the book that inspired him to become an ocean explorer and how he's now trying to bring his underwater adventures right into every classroom in America. Coming up with Dr. Robert Ballard in just a moment. Dr. Robert D. Ballard is founder and president of the Ocean Exploration Trust, which owns and operates the exploration vessel Nautilus. His extraordinary underwater discoveries have included the RMS Titanic, German battleship Bismarck, and countless other ancient shipwrecks. He holds 21 honorary degrees, received the National Endowment for the Humanities Medal, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Ballard, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I read that you originally got into your line of work because you were inspired by reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a kid. And of yeah. course, you named your ship the Nautilus, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, grew up in Los Angeles, and but the first book I read as a kid was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then uh, Disney made that great m movie with a... Uh, James Mason yeah. is Captain Nemo, and Kirk Douglas was Ned the Harpoonist who tried to kill the Nautilus with a harpoon. 
And I just became captivated with that. And my parents said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, Captain Nemo. And fortunately, they didn't laugh at my passion. You should never yeah. laugh at a child's passion. You just need to work with it. So they said, well, tell me more about the Nautilus. I said, it was a submarine. Well, I was at that time, we were living in San Diego. And they took me down to the sub base. Now, I'm 75. So I was born at six months after Pearl Harbor. So when I was growing up, there were diesel subs down there coming back from the Battle of the Pacific. And I fell in love with that. I went on to become a naval officer and in deep submergence. But they said, well, the Nautilus was more than a submarine. I said, yeah, I had a big window that you could yeah. stare out of. And they said, well, that sounds like an oceanographer. Yeah. It also had a pipe organ. Yeah, and not far <laughs> from my house is the largest oceanographic institution, uh, Scripps. So I went on to get a PhD in oceanography. So I'm just a kid from Kansas, <laughs> planted in the warm sands of San Diego and Los Angeles, chasing my dream. Now, did it drive you crazy when they got rid of 20,000 Leagues broke Undersea, the ride at, yeah, at Disneyland? But I was the, one of the first kids to go on it. <laughs> I love I think that it was one. I used to love that. I think it was 1954 when the movie came out. Okay. And I think the ride came in this in the, yeah. in the when I was about 14. Yeah. yeah. I, now it's I finding fell in fact, you know, ironically, yesterday <laughs> I was with uh, a, a Tim Disney. Because oh, I work, really? uh, yeah, he's the... He's the uh, son of uh, Roy J uh, Disney Roy Jr. Disney. Okay, and his grandfather was Walt Disney's f uh, brother. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah small world. Huh. Well, in your early career, you were doing all of these scientific pursuits where you were going down to the hydrothermal vents Correct. and discovering underwater earthquakes. Yeah, in, we were in studying uh, seamounts, right? Well, well, I was lucky. You know, I, I, I'm a very lucky person. I, I, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, rather frequently. And so when I was uh, growing up and I, I went to school here in, in LA, in elementary, junior high, and high school, I went to UC Santa Barbara and began oh, my yeah. marine training. And then I w went to graduate school at USC. But I uh, was in school during the Vietnam War and I had received a commission because it was mandatory ROTC back then for kids at land-grant universities. So I got a... Uh, a uh, commission in Army Infantry, then later Army Intelligence. But I went on what was called delayed a call to active duty to go to graduate school. And then one night there was a knock on a door and there's a naval officer standing there with an envelope and says, congratulations, you're no longer an Army officer. <laughs> you're in the Navy and you have six days to report to the deep diving submarine program at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. So it was fate. Wow. And I got in my little VW and I drove across the United States and I reported for active duty as an ensign in the U.S. Navy, March 10th, 1967. And the rest is somewhat history because <laughs> I stayed at Woods Hole for 30 years, got my Ph.D. in marine geology and geophysics and did a lot of things since well, then. Well, yeah. And how did you transition from studying underwater geology to in the 80s, I guess it was, that you suddenly started looking for sunken ships. Well, you know, it's an interesting story happen? now. Uh, if I were to told you this, this story in the 80s, I would have had to shoot you because it was classified. <laughs> okay. Actually, the Titanic was a cover for a series right. of military operations. And uh, I wanted to build this new technology of what we call telepresence. See, the issue I was dealing with it was getting in a submarine and going down to the bottom of the ocean. Well, Which the is average- very dangerous at and, those depths. And, uh, really very deep. Yeah. Uh, and so the problem is if you go to the uh, average depth of the ocean, Titanic sits at about the average depth is 12,000, 13,000 feet. It takes you two and a half hours to get to work in the morning, two and a half hours to get home. <laughs> That's a hell of a commute. Yeah, and when I dove to 20,000 feet, it was six hours each way, which meant you had minutes on the bottom. So after doing it for about a quarter of a century, I went off to Stanford, and I was teaching geophysics. I was on sabbatical, and I began to see what was happening in the emerging Silicon Valley, microprocessing, digital imagery, fiber optics. I probably should have thought, you know, I could make a cell phone out of this, but I didn't. <laughs> I, I saw a way of moving away from human presence to telepresence, mm -hmm. to robotics. So this was 1979, and I came back and created a, the Deep Submergence Laboratory and started building deep-sea robots. And the beauty of that was that once you put the robot down, you can keep it down for days and days and days and days and just move mm -hmm. your spirit to the speed of light. And that's what my ship left uh, San Pedro yesterday. 
on a six-month mission. I'll be joining it shortly. Uh, I'll be coming oh, and going. Wow. I won't go the full, full six months. But yeah. you can actually not have to be on the ship anymore. We have a command That's center amazing. on the ship. But then we build remote command centers anywhere you want one on land. And with satellite link and the new high-speed internet, internet two level three, we can fool you into thinking you're on the bottom of the ocean and you're on land. Well, you know, I want to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning, uh, this government program yeah. that you were working with when you found the Titanic. Well, we lost uh, two submarines during the Cold War, Yeah, the Thresher and the Scorpion. And in the case of the Scorpion, it was carrying nuclear weapons, and we don't mm. really like leaving them around. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Navy wanted me to map the sites and pinpoint where everything was, but also want to know where the reactors were mm -hmm. and what the reactors were doing to the environment. And so that was my mission, but they didn't want the Soviets to follow us. We knew mm -hmm. roughly where the submarines were because we had an underwater listening system that heard them implode. So we could triangulate roughly where they were. The Soviets didn't know that. So we had to have a cover so they wouldn't put a satellite on me and track me. Huh. And so we said, well, we're going to go find the Titanic. <laughs> so I must tell you that. But for you, Pentagon, that was the real that goal. That was my, well, I wanted to do both. <laughs> that was your priority. I wanted to do you know, all yeah. of the above. I'm an equal opportunity explorer. <laughs> but uh, the Navy was absolutely a little upset when I found the Titanic. Because yeah. they said, you were not supposed to find it, Commander Ballard. <laughs> you were supposed to just look for it. And now you've drawn the world's attention to yeah. you. But the world was so enamored with the Titanic, they never... Yeah. never. So it was the Navy finally declassified it. But it just, they just decided, yeah. yeah, let's tell the world. Yeah, so the deal was that you had to find these two sunken first. submarines first. And then they would let you go screw Correct. around. And, and with not much days left over. I mean, they didn't leave me many really? days. Only about 12 wow. But and I had in my embedded in my team uh, naval intelligence officers that they did, no one knew except me that they were. Oh, and two of them I picked were women because they were so chauvinistic uh. back then. You know, it's just, <laughs> just quote just a woman, but they were spooks, and they were the ones yeah. that. Uh, said, okay, you did your job. You can you can go after the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you started finally getting around to searching for the Titanic, what did you have to go on? I'm assuming you weren't just wandering around looking for no, smokestacks. No, no, no. Well, actually, yes. <laughs> Was there some, a trail? Some degree. What normally, if you look at the people that went ahead of me, there were s several groups that went ahead of me. They used the traditional search approach, which mm -hmm. was to to tow a sonar deep in the ocean that looks sideways and sort of like mowing the lawn. Mm -hmm. It has about a kilometer swath width of lawnmower blade, so to speak. <laughs> and then they just mow back and forth, back and forth. The problem is the search area is about 150 square miles, and that's a lot of mowing. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have that time. So I had learned a trick from mapping the Thresher and the Scorpion that I couldn't tell the world about. They said, well, how did you come up with this strategy? I said, well, you just thought about it. And that was, don't look for the Titanic. Look for its debris. Because okay. when I was mapping the Thresher and the Scorpion, when these submarines implode, they go off like bombs. Mm -hmm. And everything inside the submarine comes out and begins falling to the ocean floor. Well, the currents separate it out. It's like right. separating the wheat from the chaff. Okay. And you get a debris field that's a beautiful density gradient. And so we knew the current from the uh, California that sat and watched the Titanic sink. It was a Labrador mm -hmm. current. So we knew the debris field would be north-south. We calculated it would be about a mile long. So we spaced our lines running east-west at 0.9 miles and figured we would intersect the debris field and then knew immediately to follow it north. And that's exactly what we did. Wow. And what was it like for you when you've finally realized you'd found it. Well, you it. know, it's interesting because there's two people inside of you. One is the professional and one's the human, the normal kid. And obviously when we found it, because it was like in the fourth quarter with a buzzer about to go off, we did a three-point shot. We were all jumping up and down and screaming and yelling. And then someone made this innocent comment. You know, she sinks in 20 minutes because it was 2 in the morning and she sank at 2.20. Oh, wow. And that innocent comment was so devastating because we were celebrating. Yeah. And we felt yeah. embarrassed. And so it was like someone hit a wall switch and we went, oh. And the mood shifted. 
too somber and it stayed like that because we had now lost found these lost souls we were finding where they bodies had landed it was really humanizing experience and we said okay don't ever touch anything yeah and we never took anything it was all over the place yeah. we could have easily t- we said no don't touch it and so that was yeah so there was that professional excitement and human yeah. remorse now, when you went down there physically yourself. The next year. This, yeah. What was, what was that? Was it spooky? Was yeah. it quiet down there? It was there? like going to a haunted house. Wow. Particularly when we went inside. I mean, you would go along. I had a little robot called uh, Jason Jr. <laughs> I, I parked the submarine on the deck next to the grand staircase, which had been shattered by the impact. And then we sent the little Jason Jr. down. And, and, that was, and then you become Jason Jr. So you're now, yeah. your, your soul is inside that little vehicle. And I'll never forget, we were going deeper and deeper into the ship. We turned and a light came on in front of us that scared the living genius out of us. And we just jumped back and the submarine hit our head. And, and then we realized, well, we're not there. It's a robot. So let's go and find out. <laughs> so we w- drove over to the light and what it was was our lights bouncing off a chandelier. Oh my God! It's like the you know the law you know the yeah. gun gunfighter that draws on yeah. a mirror. Yeah. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. That's so, incredible. but it was spooky. But then you, the state of preservation uh, inside the ship, and particularly the deeper you went, was really high state of preservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's now, an underwater museum. Yeah, and you said that you never wanted to touch anything down there, but over the years, I've seen a number of touring yeah. exhibits yeah, well, where they have things that have been brought up and they don't toured a, around the country. I assume it, that that upsets you. That it you did. Don't approve do, of that. do you go to Gettysburg with a shovel? Yeah. Do you take belt buckles <laughs> off the Arizona? Yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, do you really go down to where that person's remnants of that person see when a body lands and they came raining down? All the bodies that weren't in, all the people that weren't in life jackets came raining down, landing all over the place. And they're immediately found by animals and they're eaten uh, if you die in the woods. And then they expose your skeleton and then mother nature in the deep seas under saturating calcium carbonate. So it dissolves the, the skeleton. It takes about seven years, but it leaves anything they won't eat or dissolve like your shoes. So all around the Titanic are pairs of shoes. Oh, my God. Exactly in the orientation where they were once attached to the body. You can see the body with your mind. And so you come across a mother's shoes and her daughter's shoes next to her, and you're going to pick up their purse? Yeah. That is unbelievable. Please. Wow. So that's despicable. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I have it's a graveyard. Other than that, I don't have very strong feelings. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think they're despicable yeah. people. <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't hear much of you searching for sunken pirate ships or no. lost Spanish galleons. Does that more mercenary yeah. brand of ocean exploration not interest you, really? Well, because it tends to be highly destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, we have done archaeological expeditions where we're going and finding ships we do not know anything about Mm -hmm. and under if you properly done with with professionals who are not grave robbers or treasure hunters yeah then you excavate very much just like you excavate uh, any archaeological site under the supervision of a project archaeologist Mm -hmm. and that person makes the decision not you nor is anything sold it's it's any objects you collect are, are conserved in perpetuity, which mm-hmm. is a long time, and then put on public display, display and accessible. Okay. So there's no. So prof- you're not looking for bullion that no. you can auction or something. No. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, maybe there's some karma to that because it seems like you've had a lot more luck than those people who do set out to find that sort well, of thing. Well, we've discovered more. Yeah. Uh, ancient shipwrecks in the deep sea than right. anyone else in the world. And right. we, we've been finding them like in the Black Sea where I began my Nautilus journey in 2009 mm-hmm. when I first acquired it. Uh, we found shipwrecks that are perfectly preserved in, because the Black Sea doesn't have any oxygen in the deep water. So it's in right. mint condition. And in fact, we recently wow. found a ship from the classical period with human remains. Really? With their DNA. And so you figure there are, the United Nations estimates there are 3 million 
ancient shipwrecks in the ocean. And the wood hasn't decayed. Nope, perfectly preserved. Incredible. So think about three million time capsules of human history. Yeah. And I like to tell kids in middle school that their generation is going to explore more of Earth mm. than all previous generations combined. So the age of exploration is in middle school right now. And that's my job is to plant that passion inside them. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with ocean explorer Dr. Robert Ballard when we come back in just a moment. When our phones are our very own tailor-made media universes and our social media feeds are seeded with opinions and lies, how can we possibly find common ground, especially when our politicians are getting more entrenched by the day? Thankfully, there is one way to maintain a level of frankness and transparency in your media. Listen to On the Media, WNYC's weekly investigation into how the media shapes our worldview. While maintaining the civility and fairness that are hallmarks of public radio, the team at On the Media tackles sticky issues and untangles this era's most intractable questions. Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are your hosts on a search for the truth in a 24-hour news cycle. Catch them on their weekly podcast, On the Media, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for today's show comes from FilterBuy. During the summer months, you want to be sure that you keep your home cool and your energy bill low all season long. Thankfully, FilterBuy offers over 500 different sizes of filters, as well as custom sizing, so you can find a filter for your HVAC unit, no matter its dimensions. Not to mention, FilterBuy offers a wide selection of high-quality air filters in every MERV rating, including an AFB Platinum filter that captures allergens as small as 1 micron, perfect for combating allergy season. And all orders ship within 24 hours direct from FilterBuy's U.S. factory to you, so you get the best price possible. No middlemen, no markup. Even shipping is free within the continental U.S., so breathe easy with a filter you can count on from FilterBuy. Now, for a limited time, our listeners can even get a 10% discount by going to FilterBuy.com kick. That's FilterBuy, spelled B-U-Y, dot com slash kick for 10% off your new air filter. And now, back to the show. I read that you're hoping to get this into classrooms so kids can see this in real time. Very much. I'm being well-funded by the government to explore the 50% of the United States that's underwater. Half of our nation, most people don't realize it, half the United States of America lies beneath the sea, yet we have better maps of Mars than a half of the United States. And I'm trying to do something about that. So we are funded. Wow. Our, our ship of exploration is funded to go where no one has gone before on planet Earth, but in particular to do the modern-day Lewis and Clark expeditions. But I need to modify that. When Lewis and Clark went on their expedition, they were all mostly white guys yeah. with one Native American, <laughs> Satchiko Jawea. My team, which I call the core of exploration, I've mandated will be 55% women, in positions of leadership and authority, and it'll have the faces of America, the united shades of America, so that children can see in the faces of the core themselves. That's terrific. And that's what I'm trying to talk some people out of some money tonight (laughs) to help me build this real James Bond command center that will be hooked up by way of satellite to the classrooms of, of mostly middle schools. I'm after middle school kids. That's terrific. Because it's in middle school. The next generation. Well, it's in middle school when children develop their passions Mm -hmm. and I want their passions to be exploration, engineering and science. So I want to take them on my trips and get that passion fired up. That's so cool. And I think I read that more recently in the past two years, you've been focused on exploring up and down the Pacific coast. Correct. Now, I don't usually think of that as a particularly active area, at least in terms of undersea archaeology. What are you looking for there? Well, actually, uh, we're going to the uh, uh, other extremes of archaeology. Okay. So at the extreme end of archaeology, older and older you get, you, in time you go more back into anthropology. Okay. And here we have a program we've started called Walking with the Ancients. 
Now, there's a big mystery about when humans populated the lower 40, uh-huh. 48. We know that humans left Africa around 60,000 years ago and made the, began the migration all over the planet. They got up to Siberia, and then during the what's called the last glacial maximum, and that's when the great ice sheets used up so much water that it was a land bridge between Siberia and Alaska. They called it Beringia for the Bering Sea, and they walked across it, and then the water came back up and trapped them. So the earliest Native Americans were uh, came across around 20,000 years, got trapped, and then the question is, when did they get by the glaciers of the Canadian Rockies? Mm-hmm. Well, the old school of thought was when they found in Clovis, New Mexico, they found a spearhead, and they were able to date the setting in which it was found back to 10,000 years ago. Wow. And they called it the Clovis uh, Spearhead. Hmm. And they felt, ah, those, they're the oldest. Yeah. But then they started finding much older sites, 15,000, 16, all the way down to the tip of Terra Ter- del Fuego hmm. at Montevago. They found 17,000, 18,000 heroes. So they clearly got around the glaciers. So they thought, well, maybe they went by canoe around them. And I said, wait, okay. a, minute, wait a minute. If you go back to the last glacial maximum, sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. Huh. So I began going into the literature, and I said, has anyone walked that shoreline? Yeah. The answer is no. So you're it's too exploring deep the ancient shoreline of North America now. Looking for caves. Wow. And you can oh, watch cool. me do it live, uh, although we start broadcasting live May 12th. I get aboard the ship in July, and I start cave hunting uh, July 7th. How exciting. And you can Go with me. So there's so there's that, and we're also then have another project with National Geographic called Victory at Sea. You know, I found a lot of, as you mentioned. So World War II? Yes, well, there's a lot still out there. Oh, yeah. And yeah. one of them I'm really interested in is Indianapolis. Okay. Which is, if you saw the movie Jaws, and they asked the old guy, why do you hate sharks? And he says, I was on the Indianapolis. Yeah. Because they were the ones that carried the bombs that were dropped in Japan mm-hmm. from San Francisco to Tinnerant Island in the northern Marianas Islands. But then they had a secret mission to go to, to the Philippines that no one knew about, and a Japanese submarine sank them. And so no one knew they were missing, so they went in the water for days and days and days, and 500 of them were eaten by yeah. sharks. Yeah. No one has ever found wow. the Indianapolis, which is in about 17,000 feet of water. So that's part of our Victory at Sea program. We're going to be going after it. Where do you think it is, roughly? Somewhere between Guam <laughs> and the Philippines. But, I mean, we've done work with the Naval Academy. We've had some really great uh, midshipmen do their thesis work on it. We got it down to about a 300 mile square mm-hmm. box, That's just, which is in our wheelhouse. <laughs> are, are most of the World War II wreckages to be found in the Pacific right now? Is, that, is that where the ha- the happy hunting is? Yeah, and it's but it's very deep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you're talking, we're going after two battleships next year off Pearl Harbor, the USS uh, Nevada and the USS New York. And if you know anything about the, uh, uh, it was the Nevada that beached itself so it mm-hmm. wouldn't block Pearl when it was sinking. Right. And then they right. raised it and fought nobly and then they sank it again and forgot where they put it. <laughs> but those are in about 14,000 feet of water. So yeah. again, that'll be next year. You can watch that whole expedition live wow. at nautiluslive.org. You also discovered the German battleship Bismarck and you investigated the Lusitania. Yep off the Irish coast. Now, that was the one that drew America into World War I, no, right? No, oh, it didn't. Okay. People say that, but it they actually that was over a year books. later. Okay. I mean, clearly, it, uh, it, it, uh, as you know, uh, America's always been reluctant to go to war with right. Germany since the largest ethnic group in America to this day mm-hmm. are Germans. And it was almost our native language. Yeah. So there's always been this reluctancy to go to war with Germany. Uh, so we've come in later on in the game. Right. Uh, but the Lusitania, the mystery there uh, was not where it was. The, the right. fish, it was but sank. how it, it sank. How it sank and yeah. what caused the second explosion. Yeah. Because the Germans were very proud about what they did. And they, they even struck a medal for their crew members. Huh. And they said, because they argued it was carrying war material. Mm-hmm which in fact it was 
when we we investigated, but it wasn't explosive. So mm-hmm. and remember the 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 luxury liners are full of champagne and eggs and and right. they're not bulk carriers, so they yeah. they can't carry. Uh, they didn't diminish the size of the people on the <laughs> ship, but they were carrying a very small amount of what it turned out to be cartridges mm-hmm. of shell uh, shell cartridges. It had nothing explosive about it. So so what our our mission with National Geographic was what caused that second explosion. So we went out to it, and you just ask the fishermen because they lose all their nets on it. It was right over there, so it was not a big search. <laughs> uh, they said, right there. Uh, it's right off the old head of Kinsale in, in Ireland on the, on the, on the eastern, near, near what is now called Cove. It was Queenstown at the time. It was okay. a British Navy base. And so we went there and quickly knew, found it. And then we had on our robots very sophisticated uh, mapping so we could actually make it in three dimensions. So we made a three-dimensional model on our computers of the Lusitania. It was laying on a starboard side, which is where the torpedo hit it. And we then superimposed the drawings of the Lusitania to look for where the magazine was. Okay. And so we now knew exactly where the magazine was. And it turns out because it was laying on its side up near the bow, it, it lifts off the bottom on the side. Okay. And so we went in underneath with another robot to exactly where the magazine was located, and it was perfectly intact. Huh. So the magazine did not explode. Plus, okay. because. So it would have been a torpedo? A torpedo hit. Okay. See, back in those days, they were driven by coal. Mm-hmm. Well, when right. you put tons and tons and tons of coal, you can create a lot of dust. Yeah. So instead of bringing all the coal th- uh, uh, down into the ship, they would come up with barges next to the ship and pull open doors mm-hmm. and put the coal in the bunkers right there, which meant the bunkers were right on the other side of the hull. Okay. Now, remember also the Lusitania was at the very tail end of her mission. So she was now almost all out of coal, except for piles and piles of coal dust, which is in a hot, okay. hot room. Right. And so when that first torpedo hit, yeah. it pushed set up off a chain and reaction. Then set off a chain reaction and wow. unzipped her. And in <laughs> fact, we then sampled the coal that was on the floor around the Lusitania. It's the most explosive coal that you can buy two minutes cold really? that you can buy. So it was, it was just, you know, that's what caused the second okay. explosion. Because I had always heard that there were these theories that it was used to get us into World War One, and maybe it hadn't been a torpedo, maybe it had been an accident, or even there are some theories that it might have been a false flag operation to no, get an no. excuse to get no, us into the war. It, 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 so it was definitely torpedoes. It was, and, But you could maybe fault Churchill really for not sending no, out an escort. He was the head of the admiralty. Admiralty at the time. And what happened was Germany issued a warning in the New York Times. They could see them. The agents could see them loading the Remington uh, cartridges aboard. In fact, when the the, uh, family, I'm trying to remember the family that sued the White Star Line, or the the Cunard Line, uh, who had uh, Vanderbilt. Okay. Uh, Commodore Vanderbilt died. Really? So the Vanderbilt family sued the Cunard line for reckless endangerment. And the trial was tried in District 1 in New York. So we went to District 1 in New York and got out the old trial records. And in 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 the findings they produced, Remington admitted to what they had put aboard and where they'd put it. So, in fact, they had recklessly endangered <laughs> yeah. the ship. So uh, what we wanted to show was that, 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 yes, it was reckless endangerment, so the Germans actually felt fine about what they were doing. Yeah. And Churchill could have sent out escorts because huh. he was sunk within sight of a British naval base. Yeah. And he did not send out. So did he, wow. was he setting it up for the kill? Oh, okay, to lure us in? Yes. Yeah. It didn't, but yeah. did he set us potentially. up? Was it potentially set Interesting. up? Interesting. Yeah. Going from early 20th century warfare to 21st century warfare, I want to ask you about something that I was hearing about about a year or two ago. It was widely reported that there was Russian submarine activity and spy ships 
near undersea fiber optic cables in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. The concern, of course, being that they might attempt to sabotage or cut off vital lines of global communication. I'm sure that you have a pretty good idea of where those cables are. Mm -hmm. Have you or any of your team ever seen any suspicious Russian activity in those areas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, you can. I'm a naval officer, and things are classified. But right. I can tell you this: uh, critical to our winning the Cold War was our discovery by scientists in the 1950s of what's called the sound channel. There's a particular layer about a thousand meters down where sound below is ducted up and sound above is ducted down. Now, whales have known about the sound channel for a long, long time because it's how they can communicate with one another over large distances. But when we learned about the sound channel, we then found a way that we could listen to Soviet submarines because the early diesel submarines, even the first nuclear ones, ha had very poorly milled propellers and they would cavitate. A cavitate okay. is where the, it spins and it creates bubbles and the bubbles collapse and makes okay. a lot of noise. Yeah. So we then began uh, uh, installing what was called the SOSIS system all around the world, off Iceland, on, and particularly in what we call choke points, mm -hmm. where we know they have to come, like between Greenland, Iceland, and Norway. It was, if you read Hunt for Red October, that's where the Dallas right. was sitting. These are choke points. Uh, Gibraltar, uh, Black Sea, anywhere, because the Soviets did not have free access to the open ocean like we do. Right, they were, they were They were buttoned up. Yeah. So we were able to then track their typhoon submarine, their ballistic missile submarines like the Red October, and be able to then put a, a one of our killer submarines right on uh, behind them because the nuclear war during the Cold War was 20 minutes long. Yeah. So you had to get everything done in 20 minutes. And so we needed to always have a killer submarine sitting on the baffles of a typhoon and then they might do a crazy Ivan and a crazy Ivan was when they just do 180 <laughs> degrees and some of the collisions that took place was when they did what we called in the Navy a crazy Ivan and they would do a 90 degree turn and hit us so oh. we tend to get below there in their baffles but <laughs> a little lower horizon yeah. but yes uh, so the Soviets wanted to neutralize our SOSA system not so much our telecommunications mm -hmm. and satellites so they really are, didn't want that system to be able to track their submarines. So they wanted to neutralize that. Okay. Yeah. And that's about as far as I'm going to take yeah, you. Oh, okay. So, so, so you might know more than you're letting on. You uh, never know. No, you're not saying anything. Moving on. An what's old your, Navy what's man. Your, what's your next through, question? Through and through. No, an active Navy man. Uh, oh, 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 okay. I didn't realize that. Yes. Okay. Move well, on. During your exploration of the deep seas, do you ever see signs of human activity like pollution or well, man-made you know, debris down there? No, it's really magical about our mission, which is about as cool as it can get. Again, kids love it. We go where no one has gone before on planet Earth. Wow. That's our mission. Therefore, no one's been there to throw trash. Yeah. So we're going to the most pristine, unexplored parts of our planet. It's a privilege Amazing. to be able to do that, yeah. to literally spend, I've been at it, I'm 75. I went on my first expedition in 59, so whatever that comes out to, 60-something. And I am just, cannot get enough of it. <laughs> and like, like I it. say, the ship left yesterday. And it's just doing shakedowns, so I'm not okay. going to go on a shakedown cruise. No. But it will be going hot and heavy uh, starting May 12th. Yeah. What, what areas along the Pacific are you covering this year? It's uh, six months, and so we're going to hang a right out of San okay. Pedro. And we begin working up the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of things we're doing. We're, there's, these are where major marine sanctuaries are. And marine sanctuaries are sort of the nurseries of, uh, of uh, life in the ocean. And so what we're doing is we're doing the deeper parts of the sanctuaries which have never been mapped. And some of the important areas are, are uh, coral, coral forests because deep sea coral sort of is the hiding grounds. It's mm -hmm. like the mangrove roots and for the smaller fish. And so what we're doing is trying to show uh, the people that are managing it where uh, there is nothing and where there is something. So they're sort of rewriting some of the boundaries and not necessarily just 
camping out on a giant piece of real estate and saying, no, you need to fine tune it a little better than that <laughs> and show them exactly the areas where these nurseries exist to protect mm -hmm. them. So we're going to do that. We've also made an interesting discovery last year. All along the coast is massive amounts of methane coming out of the bottom of the ocean. Huh. We found over 500 methane seeps along the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington. No one had ever found them before. And all of this methane is contributing to global warming naturally, and it's not in any models. Interesting. So models are models. <laughs> and so what you put in, you get out. And if you don't put any good stuff in, you get bad stuff out. So this is helping to us better refine mm -hmm. our models. But it also is a source of methane uh, gas, yeah. which is a clean gas. And also the, uh, the uh, ecosystems that are living off of the methane like the hydrothermal vents we discovered in, in the Galapagos uh -huh. when I was co-chief scientist of that, which proved the origin of life on the planet, yeah. which wasn't too bad. Yeah. Uh, we're also finding massive uh, deposits of copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold, particularly well, up on... Well, there's uh, your treasure. Well, but uh, <laughs> I, our job is to map. Uh, we're, yeah. the, we're, okay. we're Lewis, or we, I should say Lois and Clark. Okay, so you our, just point the finger. Our <laughs> job is to, we've been hired to map That's America. So like, I don't think Lewis and Clark got a cut out of the Kennecott yeah. copper mines. I don't think they got any cut out. We're not going to get any cut out of yeah. this. We're explorers. I, I read that more recently you've taken an interest in the possibility of building floating colonies yeah. on the ocean. What yeah. would that look like? Well, let me tell you about that. Uh, some fast statistics. 95% of the human race lives on less than 5% of Earth. Let that sink in. 95% of the global population lives on less than 5% of the Earth. Why? Well, most of it's underwater. Start off 72% right now mm -hmm. then look at the the irony the, being that they're all along the coast too yeah, but then <laughs> but then look at the 28 percent that's quote land 40 mm -hmm. percent of the 28 percent uninhabitable mm -hmm. polar regions uh deserts how many times you've flown coast to coast and seen a little one little light bulb down there okay mm -hmm. uh so so the point is is that humans started out particularly in america building little cities in farmlands Right. And then they ate the farmland. So as the city grew, it just sort of ate. An ocean of its I, own. When I lived mm -hmm. here in Los Angeles, it was mostly orange groves. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> what apartments, houses. So what's happening is we're losing our farmland, but we're increasing the number of people to feed. Mm -hmm. So if you then look at the ocean, you got a problem. Next mm -hmm. statistic that's bad news. 90% of all the large fish in the sea have been annihilated. Right. Okay. Why? We're eating the lions and tigers and bears of the ocean. If, if you went into a supermarket and instead of getting a chicken or a pig or a cattle that was eating grass that was a herbivore, you ate lions, tigers, and bears. There mm -hmm. wouldn't be any. Yeah. And so we, what we're now looking at is – we have to move away from a hunter-gatherer society mm -hmm. in the ocean like we did on land. 11,000 years ago, we domesticated goats and sheep. Mm -hmm. We had to cultivate wheat and corn. And so we need to move away from a hunter-gatherer society in the ocean to a farming and herding society. Okay. And to see so everyone Fisheries talk, and that sort of thing but instead it, of in but the open Fisheries, space. for example, uh, where you take a, a carnivore fish like a kampachi, which, okay. uh, which is being done right now, which we buy in a sushi restaurant called hamachi. Right. <laughs> okay, when you buy hamachi in a sushi restaurant, that's $17.50 a pound wholesale. A pig's a buck fifty. So this is an order of magnitude yeah. more. What they did is they flipped it from being a carnivore to a herbivore. Mm -hmm. and they moved it down to the lower trophic levels, which have less contamination. Okay. Huh. Each trophic level contaminates toxins, and you also then have a much more efficient way of converting sunlight to protein. Okay. And then you create colonies at sea. Wow. I'm working, I'm now based, I have a new home base here in Los Angeles in San Pedro called Alta Sea, mm -hmm. and one of my uh, uh, roommates in that facility is the Catalina Sea Ranch. Okay. And they're the only major aquaculture, they're the only aquaculture program in federal waters between 
uh, Los Angeles and Catalina is, okay. and they're harvesting amazing amounts of, of mussels. They're looking at oysters and it's scalable. It's an infinite uh-huh. amount. So wow. what we need to do okay. is uh, the, the dialogue historically is always sustainable seafood at its no, best. Past oh, that beyond that. Okay. Increase. Yeah. Not sustain. Really? Oh, when you take, for okay. example, the Kampachi project, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's called ha- Hamachi farms off Kona. Mm-hmm. They're in 12,000 feet of water. They have cages suspended below uh, ships hitting them. Oh wow! So and this in really those cages, farming the ocean. But they're in water that has zero productivity at this present moment. Wow! So they're going. In, so you have to remember another number. And I'm, I'm. A, I, people need to have their lives driven by facts, <laughs> especially and, these days. Yes, ninety-five percent of the living space where things live and can live on this planet are in the high seas. Wow. 95% totally unexplored, totally uninhabited. Hmm. That's where you go in into this 95% of living space and and you explode its productivity. Mm -hmm. Exciting stuff. Well, before we go, you already discovered the Titanic, so I can't imagine what's bigger than that, but... Do you have something that remains kind of your holy grail, something yeah. you'd still like to find? Well, let me tell you this, because it's, it's interesting. I've been at it since 1959, 150 expeditions under my belt. But the most important, we're not the Titanic. We knew that existed. It was the discovery of the original life with the mm-hmm. discovery of hydrothermal vents. Yeah. It was a discovery of black smokers that showed us how the chemistry of the world works and that water's going inside the planet and out on a regular circulation system, depositing vast resources. None of those things we knew. We went looking for A and found B, which proved to be more important. Mm-hmm. So my reflective reaction Back in 2009, looking back at my career, realizing it was coming to an end at some point, I said, we need to go back to just fundamental exploration. Mm -hmm. And so when a child asks me, what are you going to find next? I say, I don't know. (laughs) That's the most exciting of all. I don't know, but I'll tell you when I do. And hey, do you want to (laughs) go? Now, I don't want to sound silly, but how about Atlantis? Is that a fool's errand? No, well, all myths like that are based upon. But it could have been, you know, that we know that there was great floods Mm -hmm. during during human history. In fact, most uh, Noah's flood. Right. The Gilgamesh is the Persian version of Noah's flood, but in the Persian Sea. Native Americans have flood stories. We know that during uh, the Ice Age, where we're looking for walking with the ancients, that there was at the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, there was 15 million cubic kilometers of ice that went back into the ocean, and it did it violently. Yeah, It didn't go trickle, trickle, trickle. What happens was... And I've written some major science papers on this, but take the Hudson River, for example. Mm-hmm. Glaciers follow rivers. They're basically a frozen river right. under the influence of gravity. So imagine this gigantic ice sheet. Where I live in Connecticut on the Long Island Sound, it was two miles high. Wow. That's a big ice cube. Yeah. <laughs> and it bulldozes. If you look at mm-hmm. Nantucket Island, for example, it's in, the ch- it's in the shape of what we call a terminal moraine. Yeah. The tongue. So when a glacier retreats, which they really don't retreat, mm-hmm. they melt faster than they're advancing. But the front retreats, it drops its terminal yeah. moraine and it dams the river. So the water can't get out initially. And you okay. formed vast inland seas. But when the dam went, it went violent, and it went through people wow. and led to these legends so of the mega floods. Flood. All of them, Gilgamesh, wow. not just right. our flood. Everyone had a flood to <laughs> yeah, talk about. Yeah, yeah. And every religion has every, a flood every story group around of the same people time. that mm-hmm. were living because the water went from the glacier to the ocean through them. Wow. Incredible, incredible stuff. If people want to learn more about the Ocean Exploration Trust and what you're working we the, on, we where, have where two websites go? you can go to if you want to become a teacher and go to sea with us or a student and go to sea with us. We have a massive amount of teachers and students sailing with us. You go to oceanexplorationtrust.org and you'll see under that opportunities in education. 
if you want to follow us live, nautiluslive.org, we took and answered last year 60,000 questions from kids. How cool. That's so great. So tune in That's May great. 12th, start asking questions, yeah. and sit next to us for a journey <laughs> of exploration for the next six months. Well, I swear to God, you I think you have the funnest job in the world. I want to go. I like to share it. <laughs> I do share it. Yeah, I can tell. It comes across in the enthusiasm. There's no doubt about it. Well, Dr. Robert Ballard, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Stay tuned. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. You know, spring is in full swing, and if you haven't already, you might want to change your air filter. Luckily, FilterBuy offers a wide selection of high-quality air filters in every MERV rating. And with over 500 different sizes of filters, you're sure to find a filter for your HVAC unit. And now, for a limited time, get 10% off when you go to filterbuy.com kick. That's filterby, spelled B-U-Y, dot com slash kick. And just a reminder that On the Media is WNYC Studios' weekly podcast investigating how the media shape our worldview. Hosts Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are here to offer help if you, like them, are questioning the very nature of our reality. In a political and cultural moment so nerve-wracking, On the Media provides a weekly dose of sanity. Get On The Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Dr. Robert Ballard for joining me on the podcast, and a special thanks to the Milken Institute for hosting our interview during their 2017 Global Conference. You can learn more about Dr. Robert Ballard and his explorations at OceanExplorationTrust.org. And as of May 12th, you can follow along with him in real time at NautilusLive.org. You can also follow Bob Ballard and his team on Twitter at at EVNautilus. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at Kick-Ass News Pod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.